Two-thirds of the Postal Service's rural letter carriers are having their pay cut. A new pay system has been in the works between postal management and union officials for more than a decade. But rural carriers are saying the Postal Service has not given them or their managers adequate training on the new system and that they stand to lose thousands of dollars a year in pay. Now senators have joined in the questioning. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. And Jory, why is this happening? What kind of a pay system starts cutting people's pay? Well, like you said in the lead here, Tom, this has been a process that has been in the works for a very long period of time. This is something that entered into arbitration between USPS Management and the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. They agreed that a new pay system was necessary. They couldn't agree on what would feed into that new system. And so that arbiter came in and said, things in motion here. What we have learned is that unlike the city carriers uh, and other crafts within USPS, rural carriers are on this route evaluation process where they are paid by what the route pays and that route gets annual evaluations. And under this new system, what we have heard from USPS in telling Congress is that this new system accounts for declines in mail volume and Mail volume declines have been severe over the past decade, and that is why they say salaries for so many rural carriers is going down. In other words, they're getting paid by the piece of delivered mail, essentially. That is a significant portion of how they get paid, yes. Wow, and these are sometimes part-time people, or are they all full-time? Because there are part-time carriers. You see them driving around with a basket on top of their VW bug. Yeah, it's a mix of both. So there's some full-time folks and there are some part-time folks. All right. And so what are their specific complaints? One, that their pay is going down. Anything else that they have a beef about? Well, in speaking to rural carriers about this, you know, some of them were clear-eyed that they were expecting some amount of pay to go down under this new system, recognizing that, you know, they were delivering at one point 4,000 pieces of mail a day. And at this point, they're delivering something like 2,200 pieces of mail on any given day or less, a couple of hundred pieces of mail. But Their concern is that this new system isn't accurately capturing the scans and the data that they have to input that then impacts their take-home pay. For example, some rural carriers told me that the scanner, this handheld scanner that they use to input when they deliver mail and packages, is that they're not picking up on some of those scans because they're in some pretty rural and rugged areas that have poor reception. And they say that this new system doesn't recognize certain points, like when they have cluster boxes on their routes, when they don't deliver the mail to someone's front doorstep, but at the end of a long driveway, for example, that only counts as one mailbox, even though it's for many multiple residences. And then in speaking to one letter carrier, a rural carrier in La Plata, Maryland, Alicia Riley Lucas, she said the chief complaint here is just training that carriers have not been adequately trained on this new system that, again, has a direct impact on their pay. Nobody's willing to train us properly to know what kind of scans we're supposed to be doing on a daily basis that might pertain to our particular route. Nobody knows. And then if you try to figure out, you have to do it on your own time. Most places, when you are getting trained how to do a job, They train you how to do the job. They pay you how, and they train you on the job how to do the job. You can really hear the frustration in her voice. I would say if you come to a multi-mailbox setup, one of those panels, just hit your clicker 35 times and get 35 scans. That would be my answer. Probably doesn't work. What does UPS management say about all of this, Jory? 
So this came up during a recent hearing of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. They had Postmaster General Louis DeJoy up there to give them a briefing on the latest with their 10-year reform plan. But of course, this came up here with the new system. They were asking DeJoy why so many letter carriers are seeing a reduction in pay here. What DeJoy said is that this new system has been in the works since 2012 between USPS and the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. They had the basic structure of this figured out in 2019, and they started piloting some routes and the data collection there. So he says that USPS did everything they were supposed to to communicate this to carriers. But he says at the end of the day, this does reflect this unfortunate fact that mail volume has been on the decline for a very long period of time. It's unfortunate the result of it because a lot of it has resulted in the aggregation of mail decline over 10 years impacting in a rural carrier at at one shot. And earlier we said that some of the senators are starting to weigh in also. You've got the House and the Senate on this. Yeah, yeah. So senators, just before the system went into effect, they wrote to USPS outlining their concerns based on what they had heard from rural carriers in their states. And they said that they understand USPS didn't unilaterally come to this decision, that there were other parties, including that arbitration decision as part of all of this. But they said that USPS really needs to take a hard look at the data that ultimately impacts people's take-home pay. Now, one of the senators leading this is Senator Ron Wyden, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. What an aide told me from his office last week is that the USPS's response to date fails to respond to the senator's concerns and that they are pursuing all options to ensure that rural carriers are treated fairly under this new system. Yeah, it's not an easy question to answer, really. Suppose there was no mail one day to a certain route. Well, do you pay people to deliver no mail? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's possible three or four letters could come to a whole county in a given day. I mean, people complain about junk mail, but that's sometimes the only mail you get. Yeah, well, the added injury to a lot of rural carriers with all this is that they saw a huge surge in packages at the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, 2020, 2021. They were delivering way more packages than they are normally accustomed to deliver. And they didn't see a commensurate increase in pay when that happened. And so they are dealing with the decline in mail volume, but they were not getting paid accordingly with the surge in packages, again, at the peak of the pandemic. Sure. And what about the union? Which union is it? And what is it saying? So it's the National Rural Carriers Association, and uh, tellingly, they have not said much about this. Letter carriers are very frustrated with their union, that they have not been more vocal about what is going on here, uh, why the system is the way that it is. The union has not responded to multiple emailed requests for comment that I sent their way. And so, you know, a lot of the carriers that I spoke to, they went directly to Senator Wyden and others. They didn't go through the union. They feel that they have to be their own advocate in all of this because the union has not spoken up for them. Interesting. Well, I guess if you love your letter carrier, mail a letter. Yeah, well, that's the best thing you can do. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, and you're going to stay on this one. Oh, you can bet. All right. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. 
came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it 
would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. 
we would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.